Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 15. So if you could take your Bibles and open up to that passage, we're going to be looking at just a few verses um, today. And I'm excited about this message because it is so necessary for all of us. But I want to start by telling you something that happened in my life years ago, and I don't, I don't think that I could possibly ever forget it. Here's the phone call. You ready? Pastor Tim, please go to the hospital. They have no church and their little two-year-old boy is in critical condition. That was a phone call that I got from somebody in our church who was the neighbor to this family. And this family was in crisis and I had never met this family before. But I went to the hospital. I went down to where that little boy was in the room and the parents were huddled together, hugging each other outside of the hallway. I discovered the doctors that they didn't know what was wrong with the little boy. They couldn't reverse what was going on and his conditioning was worsening and it didn't look good. And they were talking about that he was moving towards dying. Now, parents, I want you to think about that for a second. Can you imagine being in those shoes? Some of you can. And your little child is getting more and more sick and it doesn't look good and your heart is desperate. And here comes a pastor that they've never met before. And I came up to them and I said, who I was, I introduced my name and I said, you know what, could I pray for you, your little boy and for your family? And they said, yes. The next day, I got a phone call from that same neighbor, the person from our church, telling me that the doctors were baffled. The little boy started improving almost immediately after I left the hospital. Two days later, that little boy made a complete recovery. It was obviously a miracle. The doctors had no medical explanation whatsoever. That family soon joined our church. The father soon put his faith in Jesus Christ because he was not a believer. That, that experience moved him to faith in Christ. And that little boy grew up to be one of my son Aaron's closest friends. I don't have the gift of healing, but I know the great physician. And he allows his children, you and I, Christian, to come in to see him, to plead for those who need healing. And this God who heals has a name. And Israel's about to meet him. Let's follow the journey of Israel as they meet Jehovah Rophi. Verse 22, Exodus chapter 15. Here we go. You ready? Let's all get in the Bibles. Let's study this together. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur, which means wall. It was a boundary. Nobody went in there. It was like a living wall. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? We're going to read on. But let me start here by extracting maybe perhaps a few principles because every person 
on this planet will be in need of healing. And it may not just be physical healing. It may be emotional, it may be spiritual, it may be mental, it may be physical, but we're all going to be in a place where we need to know Jehovah Rophi. And what we're going to learn is this today. Number one, God will lead us into the wilderness. Now that sounds so simple. Let me extract this a little bit. Let's talk about this. God will lead us into the wilderness. They're three days into the journey. They have no water. And it's important to understand. And listen, some of us aren't going to like this. But you've got to hear this. This is really important. God was the one leading them to Marah. Well, how do you see that? It says that Moses made, well, really the implication is nobody wanted to leave the banks of the Red Sea. They have just seen their enemy demolished by the might of the Lord. They had a great worship service. Nobody wanted to see. You don't like to leave when you get a worship service that just grabs your heart and you want to be in the presence of the Lord. You want to linger. Well, the people wanted to linger. The text says, then Moses made Israel. But it's not Moses leading. I mean, flip back to check chapter chapter 13 for a moment. Would you do that? Look at verse 21. Let's find out who's really leading Israel. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. And we might not like that thought, but sometimes God will lead us into the wilderness. He will lead us into a place of testing, into trials. I mean, they just had a few days before witnessed God divide the Red Sea. Can you imagine that? God divided the Red Sea. He allowed them to walk through not muddy silt, but dry ground. That's the amazing power of God. He dried up that land instantly. That was submerged under that ocean. He delivered them and he drowned the Egyptian army. And they stood on the banks of that sea. And if you go to chapter 14, look at verse 31. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They saw the power of God. They put their faith, their trust. They believed in the Lord and in Moses. And there had been, like I said, an incredible worship service on the banks of the Red Sea. And they sang one of these verses, chapter 15. Go back to our text. Look at verse 13. Here's one of the verses that they sang. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by the strength to your holy abode. So God is leading, God is guiding, and God leads two million Israelites right into the wilderness where they run out of water. They had a great beginning. They hit the wilderness and everything changed. See, you've got to understand something about the wilderness. I don't want you to think, like get in your mind, because you've already got a picture forming. That's what it means to be human. You hear things and you pitch, you form pictures of it. So you've got something going on in your mind right now, interpreting, creating a landscape of this wilderness. So let me make sure you're thinking accurately. See, the wilderness is not like the, the old Disney classic, The Adventures of the Wilderness Family, Lush Mountains, Trees and streams with salmon swimming up the rivers to spawn. 
Don't think of the river wild with Meryl Streep. Don't think of all of these beautiful landscapes of wilderness. That's not the wilderness that God was leading them into. But don't think sand dunes and endless shimmering mirages. Don't think about... Uh, the geckos that are climbing all over them. That's not the wilderness either. That's what the NIV says. It says it's a desert that God led them into. It's not desert like we're thinking with sand. God led them into a wilderness. Here's a wild, here's what the wilderness was like, okay? The entire region was in the shape of a triangle. Okay, now listen, put in your mind a triangle. The very widest axis, 250 miles uh, actually, from north to south, it was 150 miles wide, 1,500 square miles. That's what the, the, the dimensions, it really wasn't that big. And they wandered in this for 40 years. But that's the wilderness area. And guess what? 1,500 square miles, not one single river. It was unoccupied, uncultivated. It was a desolate waste place, barely used for pasturing sheep and cattle. The only people living there were a few tribes of nomads, wanderers. And God takes them right into this desolate landscape until they came to the very end of their strength and are desert, rather are desperate. You see, the wilderness, now those of you who are teachers, you're going to love this. See, the wilderness is the classroom in which God tests his people. All right, let's go a little bit better on that one. I want you to think of wilderness as the treadmill that the doctor puts the person for their stress test. I want you to think of the wilderness as the MRI machine that's getting deep images of the body. I want you to think of the wilderness as what exposes the inner condition. They move, he moves them into the wilderness and all of a sudden what's inside them is coming outside them. You see, when they came to Marah, verse 23, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, that's what the word Marah means. It means bitter. So two million thirsty Jews, all of a sudden, you ready? Here's the MRI machine just clanking away, taking picture after picture. Verse 24, they grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? See, grumbling is a symptom of a disappointed heart that refuses to trust God. Did you hear that? Grumbling is a symptom of a disappointed heart that will not trust God. In fact, the word actually means, grumbling actually means to lodge or tarry. And so you see that a grumbling person, once he or she starts, tends to get trapped into the pattern of complaint. Now, can we be kind of fair to the Israelites for a moment? I want you to look at me because I want to take you back over 430 years. They've been slaves for that long in Egypt. And I want you to think of that. 430 years. Their fathers were slaves. Their grandfathers were slaves. Their great-grandfathers were slaves all the way back 430 years before God delivers them. Nothing but hardship. Nothing but ownership from the Egyptians. They were slaves. And they've suffered through their lives. 
Now listen, because all of us can identify. Hurt and disappointment can turn toxic inside of our hearts. And when they turn toxic, they create roots of bitterness that spread and harden our hearts into unbelief. You see, bitterness is a root that chokes out faith, motivates idolatry, produces anger and complaints. God, we cannot depend on you. We remember our hardship in Egypt. We still feel the whips of our cruel master. Where were you all those years? So we're going to turn to gods whom we can manipulate, whom we can control, whom we can manage. And it doesn't matter that Jonah 2.8 says that those who worship idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. It doesn't matter. If we can control the God, then we want to do it. Because then we can manage our lives. See, if you've got a heart full of hurt and disappointment, it will create a crack in your trust. And idols fall into the crack, rather they emerge out of them. God, I can't trust you, so let me find a God substitute that I can. See, a bitter heart is an idolatrous heart in motion. This is why Hebrews 12, 15 says, be careful that no root of bitterness springs. You see that motion springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. So the question you want to ask yourself, the question that I need to ask myself is this. Do I have hurts and disappointments that have happened in my life and have I held on to them? And are they beginning, beginning to turn toxic where they're moving me to complain, moving me to harden my heart and to put my trust? and other gods. Perhaps you've got a root of bitterness that even goes all the way back to a childhood trauma or a broken marriage or a terrible boss that ruined your career. Christian, listen, God will bring you into his examination room of the wilderness and he will hang the x-ray pictures up on the backlit wall of your mirage. So that you can see what he sees. We are often in desperate need of the great physician and we might not even realize it. Point number two, it's in the wilderness that we can experience our healing God. It's in the wilderness that we can experience our healing God. Look at verse 24 and Moses cried to the Lord, that's Yahweh, remember all capital letters, Yahweh or Jehovah. And Jehovah showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log. I'm repeating myself because of emphasis. Actually, that was a mistake. You know, there's some who consider taking medicine a breach of faith. And then they tearfully watch their children die. And all the while, God is shaking his head saying, can you not read my word? I mean, King Hezekiah lay dying and God promised to heal him. Now listen, yet he exercised his power through natural means. He said, bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil. That was where he was killing Hezekiah, that he may recover. Take a a cake of pigs or of, of figs rather. I'm really on a roll tonight. 
So Moses threw that log into the bitter water, but it was God's divine power that sweetened it. And then we read there that there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. See, God had a plan for Marah. It was there that he gave them a pop quiz. Now listen, they failed. Friends, tests are not for the benefit of the teacher. Patient consultations are not for the physician. God tests us never to produce failure. That's called tempting. That's what the devil does. He tempts us. Same word, actually, in the Greek. God tests us to prove our faith genuine. Satan tempts us to get us to fail. See, God tests us to reveal our need for him, that we would see what is in our hearts, and we would flee to him for grace. See, Israel's got to see their need of grace, their inability to trust and obey, so that they can walk faithfully with their God. Listen, the wilderness is simply the backlit display. The complaints are the symptoms But there's a dark shadow of cancer in the pictures. And that's the real problem. And it's at Marah that God writes his prescription. Look at verse 27. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. By the way, did you notice the pronoun changes? I believe this is Christ speaking in the Old Testament, telling the people to listen, obey the commands of his Father, and if they do, he, Christ, will be their healer. There's a pronoun change. But this is an outlandish promise. None of the, quote, diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians will come to them. Makes me want to ask you, do you think the word faith teachers are right? That we can have, as Christians, a sick, free, and disease-free life? How interesting that Ken Copeland, who teaches that this is true, that the Christian can be, for the rest of his or her life, never saddled again by sickness or disease. How interesting that he had to cancel an Australian revival meeting because he got too sick to attend. Kind of hard to explain that one, if that's what you believe. So what does God mean here in verse 27? Well, it's actually kind of interesting. I mean, God forbid Israel from eating pork. Why? Because pigs are garbage eaters. They easily pick up bacteria and parasites. And eating poorly cooked pork transmits those parasites into human beings. Mankind didn't know about germs until relatively recently, but God knew all about them. The Egyptians commonly ate pork, and the Egyptians commonly got sick, and some died. And God said, don't eat it. Verse 20, uh, Deuteronomy 23, God commands Israel, go to the bathroom outside the camp. Don't go in the camp. 
And when you do go, take a spade with you, dig a hole, and go, and then cover it back over. Why? Well, he gives a reason. I'm the Lord, I the Lord am holy, and I walk around in your midst. I don't want to walk around in your excrement. But the other reason is this. Listen, that's a biohazard. It was in the time of uh, their Egyptian slavery. And even in Europe, up to 200 years ago, waste was left in the open spaces. The Egyptians used dung as medicine. God commanded Israel to circumcise their males. It's been since proven that women with uncircumcised husbands have astronomically higher incidences of cervical cancer. So why did God tell them to perform this circumcision, this outpatient surgery on, on the eighth day? Well, today we know that vitamin, the vitamins aren't produced in a baby until the fifth, sixth, or seventh day. And that babies have a susceptibility to bleeding between day, day two and day five. Well, in 1847, Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis concluded that doctors need to wash their hands before surgery or risk contaminating the patients. He made it mandatory, by the way, that doctors had to wash their hands between or before surgeries and before they went back into delivering babies. And guess what? He was fired for it. Yet God knew this. He commanded his people to obey, to purify their hands, to wash their bodies. You see, faith is not only seen in the singing by the Red Sea in victory. It's in obedience to everything that God says as well. God knows what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, if you obey what I put into my law, what I'm about to teach you, If you will obey it, then you're not going to get the diseases that the Egyptians got. Because I know about germs, and I know about circumcising on the eighth day, and I know about washing of your hands. The Egyptians did none of those things, but you're my people, and I want my people to be a healthy people. Why? Because I want them to serve. So does obedience to God guarantee that you're never going to get sick or grow depressed? Well, the Bible says many are the afflictions of the righteous. Of the righteous. See, not all sickness is from personal sin and disobedience, but surely some of it is. And God is saying, trust me, obey me, be faithful to do what I prescribe and I will heal you. And he's saying Egypt wouldn't, but if you, my people, will diligently listen. By the way, you know what that means, right? To listen in the Hebrew language means to hear with the intention of obeying. And God says, if my people will diligently listen, I will heal, I will restore, I will make you whole, for I am the Lord, your healer. See, Jehovah is his people's healer. That's the Hebrew word rofi, or some of you are familiar with rafa. Can go either way. Here's what it means. It means to be restored to wholeness. Can mean to be healed or cured, but it overwhelmingly means if God's going to heal you or cure you, it's because he wants you restored to wholeness. And it refers to all kinds of healing. It could be physical, emotional, or as well as spiritual, because God heals across all spectrums. He restores wholeness. 
And many Christians, they come to God when they're struggling with moral and spiritual sickness. But for the physical, they leave God out and they place their hopes in the medical community. But listen, our hope is first and foremost in our God for all types of healing. Not only what we consider his area of expertise. You know how I do it when I... Listen, if you're going to go to the hospital... Let's say you're going to get surgery and I come to see you. Or you've already had surgery and I come to see you. Here's how I'm going to pray. Here's how I consistently pray. I pray that your nurses that you're going to have and your doctors that are going to work on you and the anesthesiologists, that they're going to have a wonderful night of sleep. I'm going to pray that their families are at peace. This is what I'm going to be praying for you. I pray that their families are at peace so that they can perform their work with hearts at rest, that they will enjoy their labor, that they will love you, that they will be compassionate to you even when you're not awake. That's how I'm going to pray. But then I'm going to pray this because it shifts at this point. I'm going to pray, Lord, I hope all of that happens. I hope that you bless my friend, and all those. But beyond that, ever above that, I pray that you, the great physician, will do the work of healing. Because you're the one that gives skill to doctors. You're the one that gives mercy to so many nurses. You're the one that gives expertise and attentive ability to the anesthesiologist. It is you that I'm putting my hope in. And if you're not going to work, then the surgery will not do its job. Spurgeon said this, and I love it. If we must have a physician, let it be so, but still let us go to our God first of all. And above all, remember that there can be no power to heal in medicine of itself. Have you ever thought of it like that? Did you think that the power of Tylenol can take your headache away? Listen, that's not, it's not an innate power. Spurgeon says the healing energy must flow from the divine hand. Well, God put the the earth into motion. He doesn't need to tend it. Listen, every power of healing is coming from the hand of God, whether he uses medicine or his word. See, medicine has no power in itself to heal, but only as the power of God flows through it. This was the entire criticism of King Asa from the Old Testament. He made spiritual reforms that were sweeping in Judah, brought great revival. But in the end, he's suffering from a disease. And it says he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. Is that God saying don't ever go to a doctor? Not at all. He's saying put your hope in God. Put your hope in me, God says. I'm Jehovah Rophi. And you can go to all the doctors you want, but if I'm not working and I'm not exercising my healing power, they will be for naught. So walk faithfully with God, verse 27. And when he brings you to the wilderness and he brings the tests of Marah, trust him as the one who sees your heart's condition and knows how to heal. But there's one final part to this message, and honestly, it's the most critical. And it's this, the cross is the means of God's healing. The cross is the means of God's healing. And when you look in the New Testament, you're going to notice that healing is an outcome of the power of the gospel. This is what Jesus does. He lays his hand on the leper, and the leper's got brand new skin like a baby. 
He spit into the eyes of a blind man. He spit into the ground and make, made a paste and put it into the ears of the deaf man. It wasn't the mud. It wasn't the spit. It wasn't the contact. It was the power of God flowing through Jesus who was illustrating the wholeness that the gospel brings. See, being restored to wholeness is always the aim of the gospel. And look at verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Friends, God's not going to keep his children at the bitter waters of Marah forever. You may be there now, but you will not be there forever. And what a contrast it is to the springs and trees of Elam. And what we're about to see is the gospel. And by the way, listen, if you don't remember anything from this sermon but this, that's fine because this is worth the price of admission. It was free, by the way. Unlike some fictitious parking lot attendants who were actually charging today $5 to park in our parking lot. I tried to get in on the action to get a cup, but they left. That was a joke. Once again, not very funny. Listen, here's what I want you to remember. This is it. By the way, most important, it doesn't matter where you are in the Bible. You could be in Genesis 22, 8, and I don't even know what it says, but I know this. And Or you could be in Revelation 21, and you've already, you always, always are in line sight vision of the gospel. You will never be anywhere in the Bible that you cannot see the gospel. And sometimes our nearsightedness, they could be right in front of us and we'll see it clearly, but we don't quite see it because it's far off. And sometimes it's far off and God gives us farsightedness and it pulls it in closer. But wherever you are in the Bible, you're in the vantage point of eye contact to the gospel. And this is no exception whatsoever. Here's the message of the gospel. God saved us because we could not save ourselves. And he saved us from eternal condemnation. And he saved us for a life of joyful service. And he saved us only through Jesus on the power of the cross. And he saved us for the fame of his name. That's the gospel. He saved us through the cross of Jesus Christ and for the fame of his glorious name. And Jesus Christ, whom the apostle John called the living water. You starting to see the gospel? And he's a spring of eternal life for all who will come to him parched and desperate by this world's wilderness, Marah, bitter waters. See, there are 12 tribes in Israel, 70 elders over their families. That's it, 2 million people can be divided into 12 tribes, 70 elders. There's 12 springs of living water and 70 palm trees surrounding it. That's no accident. And God led his people. He led them to the bitter waters of Marah in the barren wilderness wasteland for a reason. To teach them to trust in their merciful, gracious God. You know, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is later going to tell us that Israel... Almost every single one of them died there in the wilderness... Because they would not believe. 
But the wilderness, it's a motif running through the Bible. It's a metaphor of this corrupt world system. And Christian, listen, we are aliens here. We are strangers. We are pilgrims. We're passing through. This is not our eternal home. And the waters here, they are bitter indeed, unable to quench the thirst in our souls. And it's a wonderful thing to gather here in church, to worship together. But we leave here. We leave here and we enter back into the wilderness of the world and we go on our mission field and we lead people to the springs of Elam because it's at Elam that we rest and rejoice but Jehovah Rophi heals at Marah did you hear that it's at Elam that we rest and rejoice we get to come to church this kind of represents our oasis but it's out there that God's doing his healing work. And we bring the balm of Gilead to the world. And the hardships that we face expose our infirmities, our sicknesses, and make us like Moses turn to our healer. But look at verse 25 again. The Lord showed Moses a log. That word is tree. Showed him a tree. And he threw it into the water. You see in the gospel? And the water became sweet. You're going to see the shadow of the cross here. Way back in the Old Testament. It's glorious. That word log is tree. And in the Greek translation. Now listen, it's called the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is zulon in the Greek. It's the same word that Peter uses for the cross of Christ. I'll read it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the zulon. Same word for the log or the tree that Moses threw into the bitter water. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That's the gospel. That cursed tree of the cross upon which Jesus died is the means by which Jehovah Rophi heals us. It's the cross that sweetens the bitterness of the wilderness experiences. So we can rejoice in suffering, find hope in disappointment, be healed to trust our God who loves us. Healing flows from the cross and it restores us to wholeness with God. It empowers us to live for him, pleasing to him, providing the means for his blessing blessings to flow upon his people and through his people to this bitter world it's a world of hope in the words of isaiah by his wounds you have been healed that cross began to heal our sin ravaged dying souls giving us new life that death cannot end friends look at look at me for a moment how terrible how terrible would it be for god to heal you of cancer without saving you, restoring you to wholeness with him. Yeah, you're healed of cancer for a few short years, but you suffer for eternity in hell. See, the aim of the gospel is much deeper than our bodies. It goes through the bodies, but it goes down to the soul where God wants to make us right with him, whole with him. But for those who place their faith in Christ, you want to see something amazing? For those who are Christians, there's another tree that you're going to enjoy for eternity, another Zulon. 
It's found in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Friend, has God led you into the wilderness? I know some of you are there. I know your stories. And in that wilderness, has your heart grown bitter like the waters of Marah toward God, mired in grumbling and complaints? If it has, flee to the cross of Christ who can sweeten those waters. Look upon your Savior who died for you, suffering for you, and cry out to Jehovah Rophi, the Lord, your healing. Trust your heavenly doctor. Listen, if you're in the wilderness, God put you there. And he put you there as a pop quiz in your life because he sees a cancer deep down that you don't quite see and he's got to get it up on the backlit wall of the wilderness difficulty. And when you see it, you can't, you come and you make a consultation visit to the great physician and you say, God, I see it now. I'm confessing it. I'm getting it out and I'm asking for your healing that you restore me to wholeness. And he will not leave that cancer in you. And all the while he is teaching you to trust him and he's going to bring you out of Marah into your Elam. That is the power of the name Jehovah Rophi. Amen.